The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. I am rolling and I seem to have a signal. There we go. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, One, ten. Hi. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. Okay, we're shrink down the side, so we got that over there. It's time for another Geeks and Beats live on location show. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. We're live on location at the Toronto Downtown Record Show, and I've already broken the bank and annoyed my wife with my budgetary indiscretions. We'll look at why the industry needs a global music release day. And look into Trent Reznor's secret project at Apple. iPods are helping dementia patients. Here comes the science. And now that Halloween is behind us, the Christmas music has begun. Yay. Why, it's all about the stupid money. (laughs) Plus, a Geeks and Beats update on the platinum record of the year and why you might soon be paying for kitty cat videos. Michael Hainsworth. So you've already blown the bank. <laughs> I was, uh, as you were setting up, I, I went for a little bit of a reconnaissance mission just to see what was happening here at the Downtown Record Show. Let me just pull out what I purchased. I have something here called Bernie Finkelstein's Greatest Hits. Uh, Bernie is a, a manager. He's a head of True North Records. He's been around for a long time. So at some point, and I don't know, I don't see a date on here, uh, he put out a compilation album of um, some of his clients, which include the Poppers, Kensington Market, and Syrinx. Do you know who Syrinx is? No, I haven't a clue. I am so out of my element here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also the best dressed guy here. What the heck? <laughs> Do you remember an old CTV future series called Here Come the 70s? No. Oh, you got to look it up on YouTube. And there, there was an opening scene. The opening scene was a rear view of a nude woman walking into the surf. Okay. And that's all it was. And she just walked into the surf until she became completely submerged. And there's this synthesizer instrumental playing as she's doing her thing. And this is this Canadian band called uh, Syrinx. And the track is called Telecom. <laughs> Anyway, I have a copy of that now. All right. Um, stand Lucky with you. Um, I bought a... Um, Wait a minute. Was that Leonard Nimoy? Yes. Yes. It's uh, Leonard Nimoy's classic album, The Way I Feel. Not in particularly great co- uh, condition. Wow. That is like 70s extravaganza. But it's on the original Dot Records label. And uh, eh, it's not bad condition there. Tomorrow I'll be going to just where I'm not quite sure. There are seeds I must be sowing for. My life is too obscure. There are questions I must ask, there are answers I must find. So please don't try to change my mind. Uh, I have a bootleg from Joe Strummer called Nefertiti Rock, which I've never seen before, and this is highly illegal, rare and unreleased recordings. And then, uh, just for fun, because I posted something a little while ago on my own website, uh, Thor, uh, which was a bodybuilder from Edmonton, 
who ended up on the Merv Griffin show at one point uh, with his classic album from 1977 on the RCA label called Keep the Dogs Away. And you can see there's Thor, the bodybuilder, with uh, one, two, three, four really vicious looking. That has got to be the, the most homoerotic 70s album cover art I've ever seen. No, you've never seen any Man of War record covers. <laughs> I'll take you in there and I'll show you some Man of War record covers and you will be completely. <laughs> Those are homoerotic. This has always been a very bad day for you, at least from a budget perspective. Yeah, it has. I always promise that I'm never going to spend any money, but of course I've already spent uh, a substantial amount. And How much have you spent already? Uh, it's only $75. Okay, well that doesn't seem too bad. No, it doesn't, but I mean, you know, there's still more to come. I mean, I just, <laughs> just got here. That's that's the problem. You, okay. Record stores are really bad for for obsessive compulsive people like me. Um, and if you look around, you'll see a lot of people who have the same sort of uncomfortable, shifty-eyed, uh, socially inept behaviors, which I possess. Okay. This is the domain of the record collector. And uh, I'm are, among my people here. And what are these people looking for here specifically? Um, How do you go about for? deciding whether or not it's worth paying $2 for that LP? Well, you're looking for something that will fill a need, a gap in your life, really is what it is. Because collecting is about acquiring the artifact. And you want to be able to have, you have this sense of being an archivist, you have this sense of being a preservationist, you have the sense of being a fan. You want to have these things that are unto themselves rare and unusual. And are you actually going to go home, crack the seal on these, open them up and play them? You'll find that there were very few factory sealed records here because uh, they can be fakes. Uh, oh, really? Dealers do not like to use generally factory sealed records unless uh, the, uh, the provenance is, is, is very carefully documented. You want to have some, and, and fa back back then, what would happen is that some of these shrink wraps would, would actually warp the records. So you, oh, you want right. to you want to break it. Um, but if you have something, you know, that's never been played, you might. Mm -hmm. um, I believe there are two types of, of, of record collectors. Um, actually, maybe three. There are the ones who um, purchase records for their collection for their enjoyment. They put them on and they listen to them. There are people who purchase and then resell. So those are collectors and traders. And there are people who are... Uh, thinking that these are investments, and for the most part, they're not. These are things that are not going to appreciate greatly in value. But the and you're never going to retire on your record collection, but you're going to have a very good one. So, I am of the first kind. I need to collect and archive something mm -hmm. and preserve something, but I will also listen to it unless it's something extremely rare like a Fragile 78 or if I ever came into contact with uh, Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen on A&M, mm -hmm. I would never play that. So this comes at a time when actually there seems to be a resurgence in interest in, in vinyl. For the first time since 1996, vinyl sales hit the one million album sales. Uh, in mark. the UK. In the just, UK just, alone. Just the, just the UK. Now, now, we have to be careful because the, the United Kingdom is nuts about music, and they've always been. I mean, I, I subscribe to a magazine called Record Collector, which comes out of the UK, and it is just loaded with this obsessive, compulsive detail on vinyl records and, and some CDs and some memorabilia as well. Here's my thought on why I think vinyl has, has seen this resurgence. It's because that digital files are just completely ephemeral. There is nothing to touch, nothing to 
see on a shelf, nothing to provide any sort of tactile enjoyment for. And that's what surprised me when Apple went big with MP3s with the iPod. There was some sort of expectation that because it was digital that you could actually give more to the listener, you, that you would have, have digital liner notes that would come back. The, the thing that sort of disappeared before Apple really got big into MP3. Yeah, they tried to do that. I mean, there was... There was a lot of promise in things like digital artwork and digital liner notes, but we really haven't seen that happen. And, and what it amazes me the most out of all of that is the number of times my wife will say, hey, when did that track come out? And I'll pull it up on my iPhone as we're listening to it, and nowhere on the display of an iPhone will it show you the actual record record date, yeah. even though it's in the data file. Yeah, I know. It's, it's kind of annoying. I do exactly the same thing, and and this is all. We can get into a big long conversation about metadata and how it's actually used, and and how things are tagged. And I'll just get very upset and start, you know, I'll, I'll overturn the table by the time we get to the end of the conversation. But it's good. I mean, I look at look at this place. We're actually in the second room of the Downtown Record Show on, on at the Estonian Hall in Broadview in in, uh, in Toronto. Um, last year, I don't believe. Yeah, the second room was open, but it wasn't nearly this crowded. No, no. And the uh, there was a big long line when we got here, and there are people of all ages who were here shopping for 45s, LPs, CDs, DVDs, 12-inch singles. It's good. I like it. It's a, I, it's a good I was impressed by the male-to-female ratio. The way you had described it to me when we were getting into this last year was very comic book guy, comic convention-esque, but the ratio is actually quite remarkable. Well, okay, we just take a look here, and I can see four, four women walking toward us right now. They're not walking toward to see us. Well, it's certainly not to see me. No, but that's true. Yeah. You report on the Journal of Musical Things why the music industry can't get its act together. On which day new music gets released? What day does new music get released? I couldn't tell you, but if I had to guess, I would say a Tuesday. It's been Tuesday for quite some time. It never used to be this way. It used to be that records would come out whenever, but that created a, a distribution problem. So that, let's say, a record came out in Toronto, uh, it would be in the stores on Tuesday, but it may not be in Edmonton until Thursday or Friday. Mm -hmm. And that created all kinds of problems with shipping and inventory and putting stuff on shelves and uh, collecting statistics for charts. But this is all pre-internet. This is all pre-internet. In the UK, Monday has been the traditional day for new releases because their thinking was, well, our charts for the previous week closed Sunday at midnight, so it makes sense to have records in the stores, the new records in the stores, for Monday morning when the shops open. Uh, Germany, for the longest time, was Wednesday. Uh, Japan was Wednesday. Uh, no, sorry, Germany was Monday, Japan was Wednesday, Australia was Friday. So you would have records coming out at all day, on all days of the week, depending on what territory you were in. Pre-internet, that didn't mean anything. So what? Nobody cared. Um, I can only think of one or two occasions where a really important record was released in the UK on a Monday, and we had to have it for whatever reason as soon as possible. We couldn't wait till Tuesday. So somebody just happened to be flying back on Monday, and we would get the record at the airport and have it on the air, you know, 12 hours before. But in the internet era... Here's the problem today. If you have a high-value record, a much-anticipated record, it's released in the UK on Monday. Well, it's immediately pirated, and people, although they can't buy it legally in their 
home shops until Tuesday or Wednesday or Friday, uh, you see pirating skyrocket. It happened with the Daft Punk record, Random Access Memories. It came out in the UK on Monday, and boom, it was pirated all over the world within seconds. You're listening to Geeks and Beasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. We are live on location at the Toronto Downtown Record Show at Broadview, north of Danforth. Trent Reznor is working with Apple. I know that he was hired by Jimmy Iovine, which is his mentor and, and, and patron for, for many, many years. Uh, he was hired by them to be the... Um chief creative officer for Beats Music. You know, we, we look at Dr. Dre and we know that that was really more of a branding exercise than anything else. But Reznor's a real musician, I'm, which I'm sure just offended everyone who likes Dr. Dre. Well, let me... <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me let me read what he told Billboard. Beats was bought by Apple and they, expect, and they expressed direct interest in me designing some products with them. Designing some products. Interesting. Yeah, but products could be physical. It could be... We know that Apple is apparently working on a more higher resolution audio format. That seems to be what's going to be coming out for U2's follow-up album to Songs of Innocence. So could this be tied to the idea that maybe you vinyl types no longer have the ability to claim higher fidelity? Well, let me continue. I can't go into details, but I feel like I'm in a unique position where it could be a benefit to them. That does mean some compromises in terms of how much brain power goes, goes towards music and creating. This is very creative work that's not directly making music, but it's around music. Next question. Is it about music delivery? It's in that world. It's exciting to me. And I think it could have a big enough impact that it's worth the effort. I'm fully in it right now. And it's challenging and it's unfamiliar and it's kind of everything I asked for. And the bad thing is that it's everything I asked for. So is it software? Is it music production software? Is it... Uh, well, they could certainly use an update to GarageBand. They don't really have a, a significant music creation presence no, in no, that no, industry. No, no, they do. Uh, uh, Final Cut... Final Cut Pro? Isn't there... No, no, hang on. That's not no, no, it. Hang no, on. That's, that's, that's that can't not, be. That's that's no, Final Cut Pro is the video. Uh, hang on, I'll show you. No, wait, wait, wait. And Pro Tools is sort of the industry standard, no, but that comes from Avid. That No, it's from Avid. Hang on. Yeah. Uh, One moment, please. Logic Pro. Logic Pro. There you go. Yeah. So, Logic Pro is the Apple version that clearly nobody really knows anything about. Well, no, that's not true. A lot of people use Logic Pro. <laughs> you didn't it's, remember it? Well, I didn't remember it, but uh, <laughs> because I'm a Pro Tools person. But, uh, yeah, Logic Pro is, 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 is quite uh, popular. It, it got a refresh not that long ago. And I was actually thinking of switching over. I was using Sony Vegas at the time. But then uh, I'm, I moved over to, to Pro Tools because it's sort of like the industry standard. Mm. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It could be, could be that. It could be some sort of hardware device. Uh, notice that he says he's working with Apple and not iTunes. Ah. But he does say it's somewhere in the, in the realm of music delivery. So, you know, draw whatever conclusions you want. 
I'm surprised you couldn't remember that Logic was the name of the Apple product, considering in your advanced age, you've been using the iPod extensively, and apparently this is helping dementia patients. I have uh, had a grandfather who uh, passed away at the age of 102, and he was really good up until 100, and after that he began to have all kinds of strokes, and that poked all kinds of holes in his memory. And after a while, he was uncommunicative and all the rest of it. But the one thing that we would always do with him is have a radio on his bedside table playing his old favorite Ukrainian music from this faraway AM radio station. And as I understand it, that's critical in maintaining certain pathways in your brain, having that uh, interaction, even if it is genuinely one way. A couple of weeks ago, I did this, spe uh, this speaking thing at, for Ontario Shores, which is a mental health center uh, in Oshawa, in Pickering. And uh, my presentation was called Nine Amazing Facts About Music in the Brain. And one of the things that we learned from this presentation is that musical memories and other memories are stored separately in your head. And some the musical memories can be used to uh, reinforce or help recall day-to-day -day memories and vice versa. Isn't this in part why you know, classic rock or the music of your life is so insanely popular? Because as you're driving, listening to your radio and your favorite song from your youth comes on, you've got a, an avalanche of memories that flood back associated with it. Yeah, that could very well be. Uh, I know that, for example, there's a place in BC called the iPod Pharmacy. And what they do is they solicit donations of old iPods, and then they use those for music therapy. And a lot of that music therapy is done on patients with Alzheimer's and dementia, because even though they may not recognize their son or daughter or their wife sitting right there next to their hospital bed, mm -hmm. you put the headphones on and you put their favorite music on, and all of a sudden they're singing along. Uh, which, again, shows how music and, and is, is stored in a different part of their brain than some of the other stuff. So the National Post got this article on this experiment in Wisconsin involving preloaded iPods given to dementia patients. They observed the results, and they documented it all in, in a film called Alive Inside. Yeah. What do you think of music? My heart belongs to music. I, I love it. Have you ever had music just hit you in a place that immediately brought you to tears? Music has that power. Music connects people with who they have been, who they are, and their lives. Because what happens when you get old is all the things you're familiar with and your identity are all just being peeled away. So it's kind of like that, um, what was that Oliver Sacks movie with Robin Williams? Uh, Awakenings. Yes. It's kind of like that. So, so these people were suffering from sleeping sickness encephalitis, um, but they were alive inside. Same thing with people with dementia. They're alive inside, even though they may appear uncommunicative on the surface. And what it, instead of having massive jolts of dopamine like they did in the movie, uh, give them a jolt of music and it brings them up, brings them back to life. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update. We have not one, not two, but three co-producers on this week's big show. Everybody wanted to be responsible for co-producing the Live on Location show. That's fantastic because, of course, the, uh, the cost associated with this... I mean, it cost me $9 for breakfast. <laughs> uh, Co-producer Garth Newton, who was just here overseeing the setup. He was here a little bit earlier with his wife, uh, Alyssa, the, the synesthesiist, or the synesthite. That's 
Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, oh. you were too busy schmoozing with somebody else to, to say hello. But uh, he came down uh, as uh, Nick Glover and Gary Struthers also opened their wallets wide. All you need to do to be uh, just like a big shot Hollywood co-producer is you open your wallet, 25 bucks. You get a credit on the show. We'll send you the uh, our album art for this week's show. And you don't have to do a thing. No. You didn't even, they didn't even have to come down and see us. So they they basically paid for our breakfast here before the big show. Oh, that's sweet. Well, thank you. It's very nice. So three co-producers, that's $75 in the bank. <laughs> we, we've doubled in the last two weeks. <laughs> You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. for another Geeks and Beats live on location show. We are live on location at the Toronto Downtown Record Show. Go to geeksandbeats.com slash live to learn more and get out of your parents' basement for a change. It seems the moment the kids come in from trick-or-treating, they flip a switch somewhere and everything's all Christmas music all the time. I swear to God that at nine o'clock on Halloween night, some carolers came to my door. (laughs) (laughs) The question becomes, when do you actually start the Christmas music phenomenon? And I, my firm belief, you gotta wait till there's snow on the ground. I think you got to wait until at least midway through November. November 15th seems like a, a, a decent day. December 1st, don't you think? Uh, no, I think because you've got American Thanksgiving and Black Friday, you've got to uh. back it up a little bit more. I know that in, in Oakville, where, where I live, that the Santa Claus Parade is coming up on November the 15th. November 15th for the Santa Claus Just Parade? Just two weeks from today. Well, I suppose that makes sense, because he's a busy guy, and you don't want... His availability, as you get closer to the 25th, I'm sure, dries up pretty quickly. Uh, what what drives me nuts is, is when you go into a store or you turn on a radio station and it's not even Halloween yet and they're playing Christmas music. And this has happened. Um, there were, I think, the first radio station, like all Christmas formats on radio stations is a big deal and because it's a huge ratings getter. And if you have big ratings through November and December, and when the ratings come out in January, that gives you a nice boost going into the second quarter of the broadcast year, which is inevitably a very, very slow time. But the first station in the U.S. to switch to all Christmas music happened two weeks before Halloween down in Alabama. That's Alabama, of all places. A place that doesn't even get snow. At all. So uh, there are at least three or four stations in the U.S. that have gone all Christmas. And now that we're past Halloween, we're going to see more stations going all Christmas. I don't understand why. I know that we're told it's all about the ratings, but when I'm getting in the car and the radio comes on and I'm flipping through the different channels, the moment I hit CHFI in Toronto, which goes all Christmas music, I think in August, (laughs) um, I I change the channel. I'm sorry. Uh, You lose me. You lose me until probably after New Year's, because I think they run the Christmas music until about Valentine's Day. Uh, You and me both. I don't like all Christmas formats. I just don't. Can you imagine what it's like to work there? 
Well, it's all automated now, right? Back back in, in my early days of radio, you would have to go click, click, click between the tracks. Now the computer just takes over. So you can just turn the volume down until the screen blinks telling you it's time to go back on the radio. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it, it's, it's tough for people who are working at those radio stations. But again, big, big ratings, big, big revenue. So guess we have to deal with it. I haven't heard any Christmas music in stores yet, but I would imagine that if we were to go out today to a mall, yep. I bet you we would hear some. Well, see, this is the thing is I don't go do my Christmas shopping until about a week before, and in some cases, three days before, which I know is a very guy thing to do. So I'm not as exposed to it as, as most people I can imagine who actually get their act together and get their Christmas shopping done in time. But even for that three-hour window where I am like a a marine. I get in, I get out. I cannot handle the Christmas music I am suffering through. No, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I despise Christmas music. It's just, it doesn't, it just seems saccharine and phony and and, and, uh... and you point out though that there's a there's an, a money component to this because most radio companies work on a fiscal year that runs from September 1st to October 30, August 31st. So getting that Christmas music add dollar in is critical. Right. So September, October, and November are very, very important months for radio revenue. You want to have nice big fat ratings during that time so you can charge as much as you possibly can for your commercials. Um, the second quarter, which is December, January, February, is the slowest quarter of the year. And you want to make sure that whatever ratings that you can bump up with Christmas music in November and December will carry you through January and February. This seems to be geared towards getting the office clerk to tune in a particular channel so that everyone at the shop and the customers who come in the door hear that Christmas music. But those people don't don't rate on a rating scale. Like, there's, there's nothing that captures those people as evidence of ears listening to oh, the station. Yes, there is. PPM meters, absolutely. So uh, it's all about exposure. So if you happen to be one of these people carrying around one of these uh, personal people meters that actually measure your radio listening as you're exposed to various radio signals throughout the day, if you walk into a store, if you walk into an office, if you walk into a workplace, if you walk into anything and you're, you're wearing your meter, well, then it's going to register you as a listener. I've never actually seen one of them. Well, I have. They look like little pagers. It's just like a little pager you yeah. put it on your hip? Um, uh, or in your wallet or, or in your purse. Picks up a, a specially encoded audio signal that comes with all radios. And it's if you are exposed to a radio signal with a PPM encoded code, uh, you are counted as being a listener at that moment. So that means if you're walking down the street, for example, and it samples every, I think it's either every 30 seconds or every minute. So if you're walking down the street or you're walking through a store and a radio station is on, uh, it registers you as a listener, even though you may not actually physically be hearing it because you're otherwise occupied. I had no idea how that actually worked. That's fascinating. Yeah, it, it's, uh, and there's all kinds of problems with it because what if you're listening online? What if you're listening through headphones? What if you're listening, you know, there's all kinds of issues. But radio ratings have always been very, very difficult to, um, to 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 capture properly uh, and so far this is the this is the best thing we got which brings us to the 21st century and Napster Napster is teaming up with Audi for the connected car yeah that's Audi you're not it's a not car Audi. <laughs> okay so Audi, Audi yeah. it's Audi like the way Schwarzenegger would pronounce yes. it yes it is a German automobile so you would pronounce it that way um, so yes Napster which still exists it is owned by a company called Rhapsody which is a streaming music service yep. uh, Napster 
has tremendous brand recognition, and they are teaming up with Audi to put a Napster button in the Audi infotainment system for some of their 2015 vehicles. So you'll be able to stream Napster uh, in your new Audi. And this isn't the Napster as we used to know it as the music stealing service. This is now the music streaming service, and they've got something, what, 30 million some odd songs? Uh, most of them have about the, the same number, which is between 20 and 25 million. It's just a matter of which one of these services you want to use. The, the difference is not so much the music, but in the user interface. And back to that user interface, this will be using Apple's CarPlay, so it's essentially mimicking the look of your iPhone on the little screen? From what I understand. We really don't know for sure, do we? No, no, it's not, because we haven't got the standard display yet. This is the problem, because when you plug in your phone, you don't know exactly what's going to come up on the, on the screen on your car, if anything. It could be just you know, um, a connection rather than a proper interface. Now, I, again, I'm going to need a new car in May. And a lot of my decision will depend on what I'm going to be getting in the dashboard because I, I, I want to future-proof myself as much as possible when it comes to these things because it's what I do. But I've got this terrible feeling that I'm about two years too early when asking for what I want in my dashboard. I don't think we're going to see anything proper until... Maybe 2020. You don't think there's going to be an aftermarket option? Well, no, well, there may be an aftermarket option, but you can yank whatever you've got in your dashboard out because it's so integrated with the rest of your car. If you mess, oh, yeah, if you yeah, mess yeah. With, with what's in your dashboard, the factory system, you can invalidate the warranty for the whole thing. So, no, I don't think there's an aftermarket situation for me at all. Last week, uh, we had uh, questioned whether or not we would get a 2014 Platinum record, and Geeks and Beats writer Vanessa Azoli reports that, yes, in fact, uh, we did get one, and it was Taylor Swift. Maybe Canada put her over the top there with that eight seconds of static. That's rather interesting. The guesses are that somewhere between 900,000 and 1.2 million copies of 1989 will be sold in its first week. And again, to be platinum, it has to be a million. It has to be a million in the U.S. We are def She is definitely going to reach a million copies before the end of the year, which will put Taylor Swift as the only person to release a record in 2014 in the U.S. to sell more than a million copies. Couldn't have happened to a better girl. You know, I think she, it's rather fascinating the way that she's cultivated her career from this country star into this pop singer and it's worked very well for her. Cut the cord and go to geeksandbeats.com anytime. You'll get the latest episode and links to the stories the boys are talking about. Geeksandbeats.com Also available on 8-track and cassette. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. We are live on location at the Toronto Downtown Record Show at Broadview, north of Danforth. So we all know that the internet exists for only primarily two reasons. Um, adult entertainment. And cat videos. And cat videos. And the question becomes, are you willing to pay, not for the adult entertainment, but for the cat videos? Where are you going with this? Well, apparently YouTube is looking at an ad-free service, and this is where you would primarily go for your cat videos. This is their streaming music service, or their streaming service? 
Nope. The pre-roll ads when you want to watch, uh, and it was it was funny. Shane Alexander, Geeks and Beats writer, said, you know, the pre-roll ads that show up every time you want to watch a vintage Duran Duran video or your latest viral cat video, uh, of course, happens. But you could. They're working apparently on a, a pilot program. They started this actually in May of 2013, possibly rolling it out full time. The idea that you could actually have a pro YouTube account where no matter what video you watch, there is no ad. Huh, because the pre-rolls can be rather annoying. Very annoying. Especially the ones that don't allow you to click past them after about 10 or 15 seconds. And what I learned from a big shot in the ad industry is that if you hit that skip this ad button, maybe you've watched, because you have to watch the first five seconds. It's probably 10 or 15, but if anyway. If it's a 30 second ad and you watch 29 seconds of it and then hit the skip this ad button, that advertiser does not register that as a view. And therefore, YouTube doesn't get the cash from it. You have to watch it from beginning to end. And of course, nobody does. You immediately because get to skip this ad. Because some of those are three ad. minutes long. Exactly. So would you be willing to pay a couple of bucks to be able to skip all ads on YouTube altogether and watch your kitty cat videos in peace? That's a really interesting question. I was having a conversation with somebody earlier who has a son who does not watch any TV at all. Their TV is YouTube. Yeah. So. That's the same thing with my daughter. When the TV goes out, because for some reason Bell 5 in my neighborhood goes out quite a bit, she will just reach over, grab an iPad, and keep on going. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Back in when we were kids, it was, you know, clean your room or no TV. Now it's clean your room or no screens. Anything that's a glowing rectangle in our house has to be off limits to my kid because she's got more than one option now. All right, so this is moving YouTube in a direction of a more of a, what's the word, commercial... Well, they're, distribution. they're already making a ton of money off the ads as it is. So with that in mind, you know, just take it to that pay? next level. So what, what would the cost be? Ten bucks a month? That seems to be the... That seems to be the going rate. We don't know for sure. At the Code Mobile Technology Conference in Half Moon Bay in California, Susan Wojcicki, the Google Senior VP who heads the YouTube business, did confirm that the plan is a go, and she didn't give us very many details, including how much the subscription would cost, report Shane. I sometimes watch YouTube videos on my Apple TV on my big screen in the uh, in the living room. Yeah. Um, and the quality is usually pretty good. Mm -hmm. You've got a big screen TV in your bedroom? Yeah. Well, you know what they say about couples that have big screen TVs in the bedroom. It's true. The, the sex dries up. Oh, your oh, sex oh, life oh, oh, evaporates no. by like 60%. Oh, no. That's, that's not what I meant. Oh. Because <laughs> it's connected to a DVD player. Okay. DVD player? Why would that be relevant? Uh, what is this, 1989? <laughs> well, it's, you have more control over the programming. Uh, okay, fine, fine, fine. I don't necessarily agree with that. Hey, on the topic of, uh, <laughs> topic of cat videos, someone's invented a grand piano that only a cat can hear. Yeah, this is wild. Did you know that cats can hear up to 64,000 hertz? What, what, we did this test not too long ago about the age of your ear based upon this YouTube video, and you and I only heard the first two tones. I think you got one higher than me. Uh, I highly doubt that. You look more like a cat than me, so you probably have better hearing. Oh, well, thank you. 
But having said that, I think we top out at, what, 15,000 hertz, yeah, generally. If, if you're a kid, you might be able to hear 18. Right. But so a cat can go to 64,000, 11 octaves, and one more than a dog. Yes. Cats can hear better than dogs. Okay. So some scientist in the UK decided that, well, if cats can use this much of the audio spectrum, then perhaps we should build a special piano for them so it played music that they can hear that we can't hear. But how do we know what they like to hear? Well, you test them. <laughs> so there's this video of a bunch of cats in the front row of uh, what looks like a little theater, and this guy is playing this special piano, and he's right. playing Jay-Z, and he's playing Justin Timberlake, and apparently the cats just love it. So it's it's the same music, but just at an octave range that we can't hear. Yeah, and the cats Thank just God. freaked out. So what this proves is, yes, cats have very good hearing and very bad taste in music. <laughs> know if they actually liked it. Well, no, they apparently showed that they they apparently showed all kinds of uh, love for what the guy was doing. How does a cat express love? Jumped on the keyboard, started playing themselves. Oh, they joined in. And they joined in, and, and then they, they, they perked up, and they were looking around, and they seemed to be rather attentive. Man. Are, you're not a video game guy, are you? No, I'm not. Oh, that's a shame. That's a shame, because uh, GMB writer Matt Padani put out this great article on how LucasArts is making a big comeback. LucasFilm had a, a video game division that they started up in the late 80s, early 90s. And there was a whole neat collection of, of titles. Of course, you would have the whole Star Wars franchise in there as well. But you had these adventure games, too, where you would play these characters, and you would type things like, open the door, and you would watch graphically. How uh, granted, is this? Oh, this is probably 1990, when they came out with games like uh, The Secret of Monkey Island and Sam and Max and that sort of thing. And so these were games that you would have played on a, on a you know a 486 or something like that with 16 colors. Not in 1990. Like you were oh, that was a 386. Okay. So with that in mind, with 16 color graphics, they've come back. Um, LucasArts was actually spun off as a as a whole separate company and uh, ended up being bought up by Disney Interactive, which owns Lucasfilm, the subsidiaries, and now LucasArts. So they're going to bring back these games? They're bringing back these games. Star Wars X-Wing, uh, TIE Fighter, all of the Knights of the Old Republic, where you actually play a Jedi himself. But the one that interested me was The Secret of Monkey Island, where you, you have to hunt down this big battle pirate. And it was absolutely fascinating that they're bringing them back at a time when video games have gone all 3D. This looks like a cartoon more than anything else. So what, it's like 8-bit graphics, isn't it? Basically, yeah. And people are willing to pay to bring these games back and relive their youth. Okay, I'll buy that because my grand era of video gaming would have been the old stand-up consoles. Sure. In the early 80s, so that would be the original Pac-Man. Asteroids, I'm a sure. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of Asteroids. I no. found that a, a little two-dimensional. Uh, but Berserk was my one of my favorites. Oh, Berserk would send me over the edge. Your your heart rate would go through the roof trying to play Berserk. Love Berserk. Um, what else was there? I didn't mind Frogger. I didn't mind Dig Dug. I didn't mind Cubert. I didn't mind. Uh, 
what is it? Is it Gallagher? Gallagher. See, you're talking about games that would have required you to leave your house to play. Yes. With sure, a, there was the Atari 2600, but the the Pac-Man version of that was just it was crap. It was garbage. So that was an era in which you would actually have to get out of your house and hunt down these video games themselves. So you would end up having your favorite places to go. It was always the Italian Social Club on Danforth for me, or the variety store around the corner. There was a place down the street from the University of Winnipeg where I would convince my friend Charlie to come with me when I didn't have classes yet. He did, and explains why he got 30% in first year French. <laughs> I think a lot of Canadian boys got 30% in first year French. A friend named Donald, who, had, uh, who was the only guy I ever knew to clear all 256 screens of Pac-Man. Doesn't, doesn't it crap out at the end of the it game? It does. It does. And he found a way. It was very clever. So he would go through, I don't know how many screens, maybe 36 or, or 42 screens or whatever it was. And he showed a trick where if you parked Pac-Man down on this one particular corner, uh, it showed the programming error. Mm-hmm because you could park in that corner and whenever a ghost came, it would bounce right off you. Really? Yeah. So once the ghost bounced off of you, you could just go about your merry way and then when you needed to hide in that corner again, you could. According to Wikipedia, so you know it must be true, Pac-Man was designed to have no ending. As long as the player kept at least one life, he or she would be able to play the game indefinitely, but this bug that kicked in would split the screen in half and it would be all garble on one side once you reach the 255 um, subroutine. Basically what this is, is you've got eight bits in a byte, and so you could keep track of the internal level counter, but once it hit the 255 mark, it would actually roll over back to zero, trying to draw 256 fruit on the screen instead of the usual seven. And that's why a whole half of the screen would end up all garbled. Is that how it worked? Okay. But he was the only guy that I knew who had done that, and he thought he had broken the machine. Well, I can imagine you would, because if the game was designed to never have an end to it, and it crapped out like this, you would figure that you had broken it. But did he get his quarterback? No. A perfect Pac-Man game occurs when the player achieves the maximum possible score on the first 255 levels without losing a single life. The maximum possible score, 3,333,360 points, and it was achieved by Billy Mitchell of Hollywood, Florida, who performed the feat in six hours. We uh, actually have been attracting quite a crowd here in a corner of our our, uh, record room, and people have been moving through and picking up records and looking at uh, us very strangely and taking pictures. Nobody's actually come up to us and said hello yet, except uh, our... Those few. Well, we've had a whole bunch. You've just been schmoozing with one or two guys, and I've had about about a dozen people come up to me already. Okay, so I, I, I apologize. You've been the antisocial one in this group. Yes, I apologize. So you that. fit in quite nicely. So I'm going to uh, let you clean up. I'm going to go back into the main room, see if I can find a couple of more things. I don't know what I'm looking for, but I do have this radio program called um, Adventures in Vinyl, and I'm looking for vinyls to have vinyl to have adventures with. So thank you to Akeem and everybody here at the uh, Downtown Record Show. It was very nice for you to give us a uh, little corner table with a uh, uh, handy electrical outlet. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.